0: Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Hui Huin of the Alabama Woodworker, and I'm joined by my friends, Sean Walker of Simple Co. Evening, fellas. Evening. And Guy Dunlop of Guy's Woodshop. Hey. Hey, how are you? Wonderful. This podcast is intended to answer your questions, the woodworking community, and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also have a Patreon campaign, and we'd like to thank our newest patron, Jessica Yan. If you'd like to show your support, we are simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com forward slash woodshop life if you'd like to show your support. And please stick around towards the end of the show, where we'll briefly talk about what we've got going on in each of our own shops. So let's get right into it. Guy, what is your
1: first question? I got the first question? Yeah, you got it this time. Oh man, I feel so wonderful. <laughs> So this question is from Mark at MBET Woodworks. Every power tool I own seems to come with its own set of tools, Allen wrenches, different heads, attachments, maybe a spare cutter or bolt, etc. How do you guys organize these spare parts in your shops to keep them handy when you need them and help identify which of these things belong to which tools? Do you attach them to the tool somehow, for example, with, with string, duct tape, magnets, With hand-powered tools, how do you you keep the paraphernalia with the tool? And he says, the Ziploc bag method I'm using now seems so gauche. Uh, (laughs) Thanks for the great show, Mark. I took this question because it's it's a really good question, and, and it's something we all struggle with. You get a tool, and there's like three or four different Allen wrenches, which are the same as the three or four Allen wrenches you got with the last tool, but they're just... Maybe a little bit difference here because this has these different attachments that go with it. And it, it can be confusing. I'm, I'm blessed in the fact that most of my hand power tools are Festool. Mm-hmm. So they all have their own container or what Festool calls a sustainer. All the accessories go in the box with the tools. So when I pull the tool out, if I need an accessory, it's always there handy. If you don't want to do festival, which I which I which I dig and I understand, you know you can buy those sustainers separately. Uh, Bosch has their own system. Dewalt has a system. There's a lot of different boxes you can buy to put tools in. If you don't want to buy boxes, just you can build a box and put all that stuff in the same box with your let's say your router. If not, there are there are some tools I have that don't have a sustainer. Like for example, my router table. I've got a bunch of drawers in there and one, I actually made a box that has all the accessories and extra spare parts and things like that for the router table itself. So anytime I, I know I need like some screws or certain Allen keys or things like that, I can go in that one box and everything is right there. What do you guys do? We
0: Yeah, so I'm right there with you in the fact that I'm blessed also to have a bunch of festival tools. But for the things that I don't have a sustainer for, in particular, for instance, my small DeWalt router, the trim router... Uh, it actually comes with a bag, so I keep a lot of the things along with the router in that bag. I mean like
1: a like a nylon bag, not a Ziploc bag?
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, a nylon bag. Like we don't as... want you
1: to be gauche. <laughs> yeah. That
0: being said, for a lot <laughs> of things I do use a Ziploc bag for... Like, for instance, uh, you know, the uh, what is it? Microfence fence Uh system. So there are a lot of like small little like screws and accessories and whatnot with it. And I keep it in the same drawer as I keep it with the trim router, the router that I use that with the most. And I have all that stuff in like a Ziploc bag. Yeah, I guess it's kind of gauche. I like that <laughs> term, man. I'm going to be using it. Yeah, a lot. it is. I'm going to
1: start using it myself quite a bit. <laughs>
0: but uh, but it's a combination of like Ziploc bags and those like nylon bags that DeWalt, Milwaukee, Bosch, all those uh, tool companies have, mm-hmm. along with a couple of actually uh, machine CNC machined like uh, tool holders type things that I use. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the uh, kind of thing you did for the the panel router that was cor- pretty cool. Correct. Correct. But I'll tell you, you know, like with your uh, with your router table guy, you had uh, gotten those inserts, those sleeves that you can buy for your all your router bits. Mm -hmm. Man, that is that's wonderful. (laughs) That's great, because a lot of these like, for instance, Whiteside or Infinity, those router bits come in like a little like Ziploc bag. And for the longest time, I was just keeping it in that. But now I have, you know, I have them all kind of laid out and little places for them. And and you can do the same thing too for like a wrench um, socket heads and whatnot. Yep. Uh, you can get these uh, like little sleeves that all the sockets will fit into. And so they're kind of nicely organized and not uh, that way you can kind of get rid of that big plastic box that they all come in, you know, the, the molded box, mm-hmm. which takes up a lot of space. But I mean, I have a combination of all those things guy that you described along with what Mark is doing, which is the Ziploc bag. And I think the best thing, at least for me, is I have a lot of drawers in my shop. And honestly, keeping certain tools that pertain to a certain operation or pertain to that specific tool in that drawer, it kind of helps keep it organized. So that way, even if it does kind of get loose, it's all kind of in that drawer. A mess, but all in that drawer. How about you, Sean? What do you got going on, man? How do you keep? For me, I end up losing a lot of the stuff and buying it. (laughs) Two or
2: three times especially for my bosch plunge router yeah um i I lost so many base plates dust collection parts and i threw them all in this in this one drawer so when it comes time to using it i don't know what is what so i I just it's a complete mess and i learned my lesson on that so on all the festal stuff i leave it in the sustainer it's so much better to have a you know have a dedicated home for this stuff and understanding what it is you know i bought the oneida dust hood for the the router and you know that's in there mixed with a bunch of other router parts, and I don't know what goes to that, or what came with the router. It's a mess. Yeah. So, you know, at the router table, I have that, the router cabinet, so I just put stuff in the uh, in one of the one of the drawers or in one of the cubby holes for that. As far as holding router bits, I bought a block foam mm. on Amazon that has I think it's about three inches thick. It has half inch, a quarter inch holes in it. Mm. Uh, I, I it's a I want to say it's a two by two. Maybe a little bit, maybe it's a, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, I think it's something like that two by two or a little bit narrower than that, but, uh, it's perfect for holding bits in it at the router table and at the CNC machine, since I have kind of like some separate bits just for that stuff over there, I ended up making an aluminum bit holder for a bits and bits nice. video that I did that yeah. I store the bits in that. And, you know, for things like, uh, like the, um, at the bandsaw, I've got a circle cutting jig. I tend to use a magnet and stick it on the side and the circle cutting jig itself. I set beside the bandsaw and the table saw, you know, just set it on the fence or, and then also I have a craftsman, uh, toolbox, one of the floor standing toolboxes that I will keep stuff in certain drawers. But for the most part, I really need to, I need to up my game and, and, and get organized. So I'm glad this question definitely came up.
1: Yeah. Magnets are a really cool thing. Mm-hmm. I, on my bandsaw, which is very close to my table saw, I've got a few of the wrenches that I use on the table saw. You know, the small, like little wrenches, not like a big, huge one or anything like that. And some of the Allen keys and the Allen keys that I need for my bandsaw—they're mm-hmm. just on magnets, yeah—stuck to the the spine of the bandsaw.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, another good example is you know I've got an anchor fence on my table saw, and quite often I need to use like that 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 Incra hex tool, which I think is like a five millimeter ball end. yeah, That's got a, a handle on it that sits on the spine of my bandsaw mm. with a magnet mm-hmm. and it's always handy and right there when I need it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really the thing, you know, you have to look at, you know, how efficient you are in the shop of finding things that you need. Most of us work in a two car garage. So walking 10 feet is not a big deal but it's still always really nice to have the things that you need right on hand and identifiable for the tool. And that, that is always a challenge, but I think most people are, are pretty smart. Just take the things that you need for that tool and put them in a place that they're easily accessible yeah. and organized. A lot of the stuff that you don't need and only use in a very limited situation, those can be stored away in a drawer somewhere,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: as long as they are labeled and you know what the hell they are. You're gonna have to like Sean, yeah. This, yeah, those are all my writer parts. Oh, I don't know what I need now. <laughs> and you gotta you gotta do the hunt and pack method. So yeah,
0: there um,
1: there there comes
0: instances where I actually I actually forget that I have a certain tool to do that operation, and I'll oh, go yeah. around <laughs> right, right, and you go around doing it the hard way, and you're like,
1: oh, that's right, I have that.
0: Okay. And it's because, well, it that's just because it.
1: you've got a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. Not true. everybody has a nice shop full of cool stuff. As <laughs> everyone starts laughing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, th- I think I-, I hope that helps Mark. You know, a lot of it is just good common sense. Yeah. And keep yeah. the things you need close to the tool or with the tool, if you can, when it mm-hmm. comes to the machinery, but for the, the, the smaller hand tools, Keep it with the hand tool,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, so.
2: And this also depends on, on, on the shop setup too. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm.
1: who's got, who's got the next one? I do. Sean.
2: That's right. From Simple That's right. This is from Christina. And uh, I, I took this because I was like, dang, I hope we can help him out, help her out on this. Uh, I recently completed a build for two white oak desktops and in my excitement to see how the grain would pop and without considering the ramifications of my actions, I threw some mineral oil on it. Uh, Man, those desktops look beautiful, but after applying just one coat, I realized I should have done some research I'm still learning about finishing techniques and figured I could use some mineral oil the same way as mineral spirits in this context I quickly realized the gigantic mistake I had after spending some time on a few woodworking forums It became clear that there's really nothing to do But to lean into finishing these desktops with more coats of oil as no other finishes will properly adhere however I have seen some comments mentioning shellac as a possible option since shellac and mineral oil are used in combination for French polishing. This is not necessarily the look I'm going for, but I'm wondering what you advise in this situation. P.S. I'd really like to avoid sanding it all down again. And it's 10 degrees outside, so I'm limited in chemical (laughs) options if I have to open the garage door for ventilation. Thanks for all you guys do. This podcast is always a huge help. Well, I took this because I was hoping, you know, to not only help answer this, but potentially learn from this as well as I pass it off to you guys here in just a second. But look, if, if I was in this situation, I wouldn't give up what I would try to do. And again, this may not be right, but I would start by flooding the surface with mineral spirits and scrub it with either a brush or steel wool and, and try to get it out of the pores and wipe up the excess with some paper towels or something like just whatever to get it off. Uh, you're going to have to repeat this a few times until you can get it as clean as you can with mineral spirits in the night. Probably let it sit overnight or at least 24 to 48 hours to let some of that remaining oil seep back to the surface and then go at it again with another coat of mineral spirits to clean it up. And then this time wipe it up with a paper towel or a cotton cloth. And it's going to kind of give you, you know, an idea of how much oil is left on the surface. If very, very, very little oil is coming up, then we can try to proceed to the next step. But if you're still getting a lot of oil, I mean, you're just going to have to keep wiping it with uh, mineral spirits and, and uh, steel wool or a brush and, and just keep going at it. You you don't want to let the mineral spirits dry on the surface. So wipe, wet it, wipe it down, scrub it with steel wool and keep wiping it. If you wait a day or two and it looks like it's pretty much got a majority of the mineral oil, then we're going to need to seal the surface with some sort of seal coat shellac. Mm-hmm. I like using Zinsser shellac for something like this because it's easy to get and you don't have to worry about mixing it. I'd probably brush on a couple of coats with the, uh, of the uh, Zinsser seal coat shellac, let it dry overnight, scuff it with 400 grit sandpaper, and then apply your first coat of varnish, let it dry completely, and then just observe the surface and see if you see any fish eye or anything like that on the surface. And if not, then proceed with your finishing schedule of, you know, scuffing that surface, applying another coat, scuffing the surface, applying the coat, and just keep an eye on it. Uh, but you really want to make sure that your shellac looks good before you Uh, make sure the shellac looks good dry before you proceed to putting your top coat on, because you'd really don't want to have to start over by removing your top coat and then starting over. So the key is to keep an eye on it after you wipe it down several times with the mineral spirits, apply your shellac, let the shellac dry and just take a look and see what that shellac looks like. Run your hand across it, run your cloth across it. Are you getting anything up through the shellac? If so, you may need to apply another coat or two of shellac. Um, But you want to seal that surface before you move on to to whatever your top coat of choice is. Uh, I'm guessing with 10 degrees outside, you're, it's going to be kind of tough no matter what you put on because that's pretty mm-hmm. cold. Mm-hmm. So whatever your finishing uh, recipe was, I would I would try this first and see if you can get that surface dry enough so that your finish will adhere to the surface. Have either of you run into an issue of trying to get up mineral oil, whether that be with you know from a butcher block or
0: something like that to apply a finish? Not mineral oil. Um, oh, gosh, I don't know. Uh, here, here's a question, and because I just don't know, yeah. But would you be able to put a wiping poly over top of mineral oil, or would that not work?
2: I, I don't know. I mean, I know obviously mineral oil is a non-drying oil, but oh, you're gosh. mixing it with. To be honest with you, I'm just spitballing here because I have no idea, yeah. um, guy. What do you think about putting something like that over it?
1: I listened to your answer, Sean. Ooh, great. and I. <laughs> Agree with you 100%. You have to just keep wiping the mineral oil up until it stops seeping out of the pores. White oak is very porous, and I guarantee you that mineral oil is down minimum a 16th of an inch into the surface of the wood. Probably more than that. You'll never be able to sand it out without taking... You know, a sixteenth or anything inch off the top of that thing—it's just not mm-hmm. going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, being where you are in, in this in this process is—is is just wait for all the excess mineral oil to come up, get rid of it, seal it with shellac. Once it's sealed with shellac, you know uh, the the Zinsser seal coat is a, is a good product to use. Sean, um, put a couple coats of that on. You have to remember. <clears throat> Shellac sticks to everything and everything sticks to shellac. So in this application, it would be a great sealer. And then you could put whatever seal you want over the top of it. I don't think I would try putting an oil finish like a, a wiping poly, like an armor seal over the top of this without sealing it with shellac first. Yeah. But yeah. It, I think everything you said, Sean, was very good advice
0: yeah sean you made a really good point that mineral oil is really will never dry right i mean that's sort of the yeah you're you're gonna have to try to extract everything out of that wood as best as you can and then yeah you, i think i think you're right guy yeah you got you got to seal it in some way before you even bother to put a wiping varnish or anything over top of it Ooh.
2: yeah and that's, that's a why hard I took one. this uh, i was hoping that we could help and you know i would try look I, your only options are to try this or sand so i I would try this like crazy before and i would just do one desktop at a time get a you know get a plan down
1: yeah Um, you know if you if you want to try christina and make sure this is the way you want to go if you've got some scrap wood uh from these desktops sand it to the same grit that you did the the desktop put mineral oil on it go through the process Put some shellac on it, see if it seals it right properly before you put the mineral or the, uh, if you decide to put a poly over the top of it mm. and test it.
2: Something will work. I mean, you, yeah. you just may have to figure out how many coat, how many cleaning treatments you have to go through the mineral spirits or, um, if you need to do something, you know, like, you know, alcohol or something like that. Um, but I would try mineral spirits first yeah. and you make sure you wipe it up, scrub it with steel, wool, we'll pull it out of there, wipe it up. And don't let that mineral spirit set there and dry. So if you got a big tabletop, don't do not just throw mineral spirits on the whole thing. Just do a section at a time. Mm. And I hope that helps. Let us know, Christina, if you're able to get a finish on here that sticks. I'm, uh, yes, please. To know.
0: And with that, we. what is your first question? Okay, this question is from Jeremy. I have a question regarding drawer slides. I am just getting into cabinet making and I'm excited to slowly make cabinets for my shop. I am first working on a built-in of sorts in my house as part of a bathroom remodel. The built-in faces out into the hallway and the back juts into the bathroom. It creates a nook for the toilet area. I made the carcass and have it installed in the wall so that the bathroom side of the project can continue. I plan to have two deep drawers on the bottom and then shelves with drawers above. I'm a little unsure of how to properly size the drawer slides, and would love to hear a discussion from you three on this subject. I ordered 21 inch undermount bloom soft close slides last fall when I was planning the project. Now that the carcass is made, the inside depth from front frameless design to back is 20 and three 4 inches. I see quite a bit online regarding how to install various drawer slides including different YouTube videos. But I am having trouble with the beginner step of learning how to size the drawer box and drawer slide properly. Do I buy a slide for the cabinet depth or for what my drawer box will be? I think the next available size down for a Bloom slide is 18 inches. Will this be difficult to mount in my deeper carcass? Thanks, guys. Keep up the great content. Jeremy. Well, Jeremy, I believe you are right. I believe the Bloom tandem undermount drawer slides come in uh, 3-inch increments, and it starts from 9 and then runs up to, I believe, 30 inches. Uh, the most commonly used length is 21 inches, and so I'm, I don't fault you for getting that because that's the size it works with a standard 24-inch deep base cabinet. Why not use 24-inch long slides with the 20? Well, <laughs> that's because a standard 24-inch deep cabinet just won't accommodate it. A 24-inch slide will be too long for the interior depth of a standard cabinet. In your case, with the depth of the cabinets being 20 and three quarter inches, I think you're going to need uh, an 18 inch length drawer slide. So undermount drawer slides need to match the depth of your drawer and your and your drawer depth is, is obviously in this case, it's dictated by the depth of the cabinet. You can't fit a 21 inch long drawer in a 20 and three quarter inch carcass. Uh, That being said, there are non-Bloom undermount drawer slides that I was able to find on the internet that sell drawer slides between 18 and 21 inches. And you may, you know, you may not want to go with a non-Bloom product. And if that's the case, then you'll be limited with the 18 inch drawer slides from from Bloom, the undermount drawer slides. Now, Guy, I know you've used a lot of undermount drawer slides. Did I miss anything there? Or is there something that um, that you you want to sort of add or help Jeremy with?
1: No, I think you pretty much got it right. Most most standard cabinets, if it's frameless, mm-hmm. is going to have a 24-inch depth. Right. And you have to remove a half inch from that because of the back.
0: Right, right.
1: So you've got 23 and a half inches to deal with, and there's mm-hmm. a setback of three millimeters or an eighth inch from the front of the door cabinet. Mm-hmm. The reason those are 21-inch is not because of frameless cabinets because of of cabinets that have a face frame Mm. because you lose another three quarters of an inch
0: uh yeah so 21 inches for that okay got it
1: so 21 inch is pretty much a universal size for most cabinet 24 inch cabinet depths with or without a face frame Mm -hmm. however there's a difference in the slides because of how they mount some mount to the side and some mount To the front and then to the back with a back bracket because Mm there's no sides to really put on it with a with a face frame. Right, right. But that's neither here nor there. I would I would highly recommend the the 18 inch, yeah ones and just get just make shorter drawer boxes and you'll be fine. Yeah, anything you like. That's all I can really say to that. (laughs) Get the 18 inch blooms and you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. And just make the boxes. not as deep. Sean, anything
2: you can add there? Yeah, I'd probably get the 21 inches and cut three inches off of them. No, <laughs> I think 18 and what you guys said is is, uh, is a game, a good game plan there. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's anything else, but no, you guys covered it. I mean, you all know more about the cabinet, cabinetry stuff than I do. I don't make a whole lot of this stuff. And uh, I, I really do want to try the undermount soft close slides. I just haven't had the opportunity yet. Yeah, awesome. so
1: the, the, the undermount soft close, uh, like the blooms, they're, they're very, and I say this all the time, it's very easy to get right and very easy to get wrong. With those particular slides, I like to use them in a frameless cabinet mm-hmm. without a face frame. Mm-hmm. And I like to drill the holes for those before I assemble the cabinets because mm. it's easier to reference things without all that crap in your way and trying to hold things up and jigs and this, that, and the other thing, right. drill them before you put the cabinet together. Mm-hmm. Uh, use the five millimeter system screws. is mm-hmm. another pro tip instead of the little like five eighths inch flathead screws with a Vix bit, a five mm-hmm. millimeter Vix bit. And they're, they're very easy to install. That way. I actually have a jig that I built that you just mm-hmm. line up and go boom, boom, boom. And you're done. Yeah. Um, out of MDF and it works really well. The the thing is with those is that you have to understand how the sizing of the drawer works. Mm-hmm. You yeah. have to have the, the the drawer done to an exact size. So typically let's say you have an opening that's 20 inches wide an opening that's 20 inches wide and you put these in there. The easiest way to do it is to use 5 8 inch material and then size your drawer to a half inch less mm-hmm. than the opening of your drawer or than the opening for the drawer so if you got a 20 inch opening and you're using 5 8 inch stock make your drawer width 19 and a half inches mm-hmm. and you'll be fine mm-hmm. um if you use half inch material, there's a different formula that has to be used. I don't know what that is off the top of my head. I mostly use half inch material and then you just have to measure. Uh, there's a couple of different measurements you have to have to make and it's just as easy, but it, it has to be exact. If it's yeah. like a sixteenth of an inch off, you're going to have a bad day. <laughs> yeah. The other thing is, is those... If you're mounting them to the to the, to the sides of a cabinet and a frameless cabinet, your cabinet sides, it has to be like perfectly square. If it's off a little bit, you're gonna have a bad day.
0: It's and that's bad. one of the
1: advantages of using a frame cabinet with those drawer slides, because you can move around the back of the slide and it's not, you know, a static thing like the side of a cabinet and a frameless, if that makes right. sense. Yeah. Because it's yeah. floating in space about, you know, a half inch.
0: You've got adjustment.
1: Yeah. You've got a lot of adjustments you can do. And yeah. it'll make it easier to, to adjust the drawers. Cool. If any of that makes sense. I know <laughs> I'm rambling.
0: I'm no, sorry. I I gotcha. This is good, good information for me. I have yet to use uh, undermount drawer slides. I just know. That they they're come the, in three-inch the increments.
1: I've been using yeah. them for quite a while, and they're 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 the absolute best. But you just have to you have to know the 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 weird things about them. The main thing is just to get your cabinet box as square as possible. Mm-hmm. That's that's the best advice I can give you. And make sure you build your your drawer boxes to the size they tell you to build them. Right, right.
0: And <clears throat> in his case, because he's doing frameless, that that's very applicable. So that'll yep. be good. Well, awesome. Uh, And now for a word from this episode's sponsor, Maverick Abraces. Maverick Abraces is a family-run, American-made manufacturer of abrasives such as sanding belts and sanding discs. There are no materials imported from China in their manufacturing process, and they really stand behind their quality and service. They have 5-inch sanding discs, boxes starting at $12.50, and their pricing on sanding belts is the best on the web. So give Garrett a call. Or check out their website at www.maverickabrasives.com. So let's get back to the questions. We're coming back around for Guy, your second question.
1: All right. I've actually got it queued up and I'm ready to go. Oh, I'm on my game tonight. <laughs> All right. It says, hey guys, I love the podcast. Y'all do a great job. By the way, this is from Jimmy. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy says, my question is about radial alarm saws. I have recently started selling tables on the side to try to make some extra cash. Good for you, Jimmy. Right now I do pretty much all my cross cutting or cross cuts with my 10 inch Chicago electric miter saw. Nice. (laughs) And I am tired of having to flip over anything wider than a two by four to cross cut. It seems that these radial arm saws are a dime a dozen on the marketplace and can be bought pretty cheap. Mm -hmm. How do they stack up to a sliding miter saw? I've really been thinking about giving one a shot just based on the $70.5 price tag, Jimmy. Jimmy, if I had the room in my shop, I I would jump at the opportunity to have a, a radial arm saw. I had one for years. Over 20 years, I, I had a, a radial alarm saw and I had to get rid of it just because it took up such a huge footprint and it wasn't as practical as a sliding compound miter saw. Most radial arm saws, if I remember correctly, have about a 16 inch cross cut capacity. Uh, that's with a 10 inch blade. They also make 12 inch ones that may have a longer. It really depends on the, the throw that's on the, the, the top arm. The nice thing about radial arm saws versus sliding compound miter saws is that they're really not affected by deflection of your grip. And I know that sounds kind of weird, but let's say you have a uh, Hitachi sliding. And I'm, not, I'm not picking on Hitachi, but I, I'll tell you, if, if, if it doesn't say Festool on it, if you take that handle and you push it one way or the other, just a little bit, you're not going to get a, 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 a joinery ready cut at 90 degrees. You'll get a different cut every time, depending on how you hold the saw and how you bring it forward on a sliding compound miter saw with the radial arm saw. There's none of that, that BS. It just cuts straight. If it, you're, if the saw is tuned properly, it cuts straight. It'll do angled cuts. It'll do compound cuts. It'll do all kinds of stuff. I loved my radial arm saw and I've actually thought about getting another one to be honest with you. And he's right. They are a dime a dozen. You can buy them for seventy-five to one hundred and fifty dollars, and buy a really nice radial arm saw. Mm-hmm. I have a friend here in town, uh, Tab Adams from Cross Country Vintage Designs. He's got two of them in his shop because he's got room for them in his shop. <laughs> but he loves those things, and I, I'm a big believer in them. But mm-hmm. you know, they're they're dangerous. Is the thing when when it catches on the, the back of the blade, it doesn't kick back. The blade just comes towards you at a really alarming rate. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, and so it just comes right at you. Um, it doesn't really kick back. Yeah. <laughs> so it can scare the pants off you. Have you ever used a, a, a rate alarm saw, Sean?
2: No, when I first started woodworking. They've been long gone. Huh?
1: They'd been long gone probably at that point. Yeah,
2: if you, you couldn't buy it at Lowe's. I didn't know anything about it when I first started. So I bought it, the Hitachi compound miter slider yeah. saw and uh and i use that in my shop thank god i don't need jointer ready cuts off of it though i just use it to break down rough lumber
1: yeah but you know what i'm talking about the deflection oh um, yeah i absolutely know what you're talking about like i mean you push your arm one way too hard or the other way too hard and it doesn't cut 90 anymore
2: no, it it doesn't take much effort at all to push it. I mean, I've not tried every saw in the market, but I know for mine, it's very difficult to make it the same cut twice.
1: We oui, have you ever used one?
0: Yes, I have. Uh, I, I've used it when I first started woodworking at the community woodshop on the Arsenal where I work, and it was really nice to have to process lumber, uh, to cross-cut really wide boards. Um, even they had one that had a 24 inch throw. So I actually went there when I needed to cross cut my workbench. I went there to cut it on their 16 inch radial arm. saw. they're really nice to have. I want to say they don't seem to take up. Okay. So take for instance, a, a your miter saw station, whatever you want to call it, the cart that you have that's about uh, about the same size as like the radial arm saw takes with nothing on it, like no outfeed, infeed tables or anything like that. It's when you have them situated in your shop uh, with, you know, all the fencing and the cabinet on the left side and cabinet on the right side so that you can process the larger lumber that they actually take up quite a bit of space. But I, I thought about getting one in lieu of getting a miter saw, but I did know that with the radial arm saw, it does take a little bit more to set them up at the different angles. Uh, I believe, I think that's the case. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but, uh, it's something that I had read that, you know, uh, it takes a little bit more to, um, get them dialed in for those other angles that you're using that you might want to use them for. And then, you know, with the radial, with the miter saw, you have all the the saws with all the detents on them, right? So it becomes a little bit easier to dial them in and uh, get the different angles. I, like I said, I did think about actually getting a radial arm saw at the very beginning, but I think I kind of went away from it thinking that I, with the joiner and planer that I sort of planned on having or ended up having that it wasn't necessary to get anything more than about, you know, 10 inches of crosscut capacity. And so I stuck with just getting a miter saw, but Hey man, if, if you think it works for you, get it. Yeah, you know, there's nothing wrong with them other yeah. than, yeah, you you need to be a little bit careful, more careful about, but that's with any tool, right? I mean, you but, just have to really then, understand.
1: Let me put you this way. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I always wax poetic politically about the, the festival Capex because mm-hmm. it has no deflection. It's the only sliding compound miter saw I've ever used that works the way it's supposed to. It's also $1,600.
0: Right. <laughs> There's a big difference um, between that and a yeah, radial arm so, saw price.
1: But let me put you this way. If you've got the room for it, that 20-year-old $100 radial arm saw you have mm-hmm. that or buy mm-hmm. will cut every bit as good as the Festival Capex does and will cut better than any, in my opinion. And I have, I've been wrong before.
2: And you could buy in 20 my- of them. Think about yep. that
1: for the, for, the, if, if I, if, if I had the room and I had a choice between, I'm not going to say Bosch cause I haven't tried the Bosch, mm-hmm. but like whoever's $250, 300 sliding compound miter saw and a 20 year old craftsman mm-hmm. radial arm saw that is 75 bucks. I'd take the radial arm saw any day of the week. No problem. It wouldn't even be, a, it wouldn't even be a question cause mm-hmm. I know it would cut better mm-hmm so there you have it there you have
2: it. well we I'm right. try one of those yeah i can speak for jimmy when i say yes i mean buy it <laughs> if you have the room and you have the 75 dollars
0: buy it that's Go what god it, is saying yeah
1: and you could put a dado stack on it
0: that's true yeah but you that's can't right. do it
1: with the sliding compound
0: mm-hmm. all right with that i think sean you've got the next question This is from Taylor, not Tyler. So (laughs) he made sure (laughs) sure to put that that.
1: again. Yeah, we're speaking, of course, of Tyler of Hubble Woodshop. (laughs) Hubble Woodshop on Instagram.
2: Taylor, yeah. All right, gentlemen. Taylor, Tyler. It's Taylor, not Tyler. Taylor. (laughs) Uh, He put he put in parentheses, not Tyler.
1: Is it is is this Hubble Woodshop? That is. Oh my gosh! I did it again. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Uh, All right. I thought I, was, I thought I was giving him a plug. I didn't need to.
2: Well, you did give him a plug. I just
1: needed to get his name right, uh-huh.
2: gentlemen. In a recent episode, you discussed <laughs> laminating two pieces of hardwood together and the need to offset grain direction to avoid warping. I'm building a simple traditional writing desk with a modern flair, and my plan is to accent the air-dried walnut drawer fronts that are five-eighths of an inch thick with an eighth-inch piece of curly maple. I'll be routing out the section to receive the maple, taking the walnut thickness to about three-eighths of an inch. My plan at that point was to laminate the maple into place. Is this a situation where I should be concerned about wood movement? Do you think the lack of material thickness will minimize these potential issues? Any device or input would be helpful. I have sent a sketched photo to your IG page for reference. So, he did. And uh, you can imagine a, an a, an apron that's four and an eighth wide. And, uh, however long. And inside of that apron, you have a a triangle. That's the drawer front that you pull out. The triangle drawer front is four and eighth wide and 18 and a quarter long. So he's going to take the walnut down to three eighths and then slap this beautiful curly maple that I'm not seeing. I'm sure it looks awesome. He's going to slap that on the front of it uh, and and glue it into place in order to give you, you know, a a stunning contrasting look with curly maple. His -hmm. concern is you know, does he need to worry about the alternating grain or the offset grain direction to avoid warping? In looking at this, his design, again, you can think of a long triangle that's 18 and an inches. 18, 18 and an inches. Listen to that. That's a new measurement. 18 and a quarter inches long, four and a eighth wide at the tallest peak. Oh, man, this is tough. You know, I personally, the drawer box is going to be made with, I think he said dovetails and he's going to be screwing through the drawer box into the uh, drawer front using screws. You know, if this were me, I, I know it would probably look a little bizarre with the grain of the walnut being vertical and the grain of the maple being horizontal. I'm not sure if if that's, you know, if that's a deal breaker for you. I mean, obviously if you can get away with it, that would be the preferred method, but you know, I would probably, this is tough. I don't want to give bad advice here, but I, I mean, for something being an eighth of an inch thick, you're going to have screws that are going to be holding it in place that could help prevent that I would probably go for it if it were me. And over time, I I can't imagine the way that this drawer front is. Just imagine a long triangle and it being that thin. But but then again, you're putting it on three-eighths of an inch thick. This is tough. I mean, I'm going to say if it were me, I would probably give it a try and and see. I am going to say that with the screws holding it in place, I think you're going to be okay. That's just my opinion on the matter. Um, What do you guys think? Would you all... Would you all alternate it or would you would you take a shot and, and gluing it as is? I'm going to uh, let Guy go on this first. <laughs> uh,
1: thanks. Um, I, I'm, I'm trying to envision my, I think I know what he's, you're referring to with all this. It's kind of confusing, but I think I've got my head wrapped around it. The alternating grain patterns, I really don't think is going to help avoid warping. It's just going to, the, the alternating grade patterns really helps with the strength. Mm-hmm. So if this is a drawer front and it's going to be pinned to the, the, it's a false drawer front and it's going to be pinned to the, to the sub front, correct? Yeah. It's going to be screwed in.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, the drawer itself is going to, or the front's going to be screwed. Correct. It's going to be screwed in. the Yeah. It's, so glued. it's, it's it's a,
1: it's, it's, a drawer front that's being screwed to a drawer box. Correct. Yeah. So it's kind of held captive. My recommendation, if you're going to do this, is you're going to have to put some kind of backer veneer on it. And it can be walnut, so it doesn't stick out as much. Uh, But I would definitely put, because the whole piece, it's not like a drawer front that's being held in place with dovetails on the side, where it's like captured and can't really move that much. I'd still put a backer veneer on it, again, Probably walnut in this case because you don't want to see that. Another thing you can do is use rift sawn walnut for the drawer sides, for the for the substrate. Um, and if you can't find, you know, a wide board like that, that's fine. Just take a board and start cutting off the ends or the sides where it's straight grain. And if you look at the board, you know, at the the frowny face or the happy face, you'll find parts of that board that are riffs on and you, you rip it and then you put it sideways. Uh, Philip Morley calls it a rip and flip where you take that and you cut off that riffs on and you put it down. Now you've got riffs on lumber and you glue it up and make your, your drawer front that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does
2: because you're covering it with the maple anyway. So you're not going to see the seams. Correct. Yet. Now
1: what you're, what you're going to get is the advantage of more glue lines to hold it together and it's going to be riffs on. So the expansion and the contraction is going to be across its thickness, not so much its width.
0: Yeah. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So another thing I would do also when I laminate all this together, I know I'm getting really convoluted and long here and I'm rambling again. I'm sorry but it's it's St. Patrick's day I've been drinking heavily <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding um, is I would put the the the, the, the back of veneer I'm sorry my phone is I gotta shut my phone. off.
2: That was me it's, I sent you a picture of the of the desk. So oh okay
1: Sean so <clears throat> I would use uh, a resin glue a urea resin glue I wouldn't right. use PVA glue so like uh, uh, a unibond 800. Or dap weldwood, mm-hmm. which you just mix with water, and it, it's very it gives a very hard glue line that that doesn't creep. Gorilla glue
2: will... also works for that too.
1: Yeah, you could use polyurethane glue. That's that. It's another thing you could do is, is polyurethane glue. I would recommend Franklin Franklin the naming glues hmm. to uh, also they, they 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 make a really good polyurethane glue. So, anyways. Uh, I just want
2: I want to touch on okay. that warping thing and you know offsetting the grain direction in my opinion does help avoid warping because if you got a panel that the grains going left to right and it cups and you have the panel mm-hmm. behind it, the grains going top to bottom, mm-hmm. it's going to help prevent that cupping
1: Yeah I, so, I agree with you but that that's a large panel. This is a very small piece of wood. I'd be more worried about expansion and contraction.
2: Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I agree with you, but I just wanted to touch on that just, just yeah, to make it clear yeah. why why one would offset the grain direction when laminating.
1: And yeah, I, I, I would agree with that, like I said, on a larger panel, but something this small, I don't think it's really going to matter much. I think it's more important to worry about the, the expansion, contraction, and cracking than anything mm. else.
0: So let me get this correct here. He's laminating a piece, an eighth-inch piece of curly maple. He's actually and-
1: insetting it.
0: In setting it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm.
1: I've got to look at the picture Sean sent me now.
0: I yeah, you know, it. yeah. Well, the only thing I've ever something similar to this would be where I had a eighth inch piece of veneer over top of the same species just to give it like the quarter look the on more the more desired grorafide. grain. Yeah, right, exactly. But it's the same species. I don't know. I just don't know the answer to that. But yeah, that's why yeah. I said mean, I would try it and
2: then just. I mean, you know, it's one of those things you may have to end up making it again if it warps. I mean, if it because you want the apron to be flush when the drawer front is yeah. when the drawers closed. So, you know, then you have to worry about, well, is it going to move at all? You know, but I would try it.
1: That's actually a really cool design and a really good idea. It's so simple, but it makes the, the whole piece pop quite a bit. I really like it. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's so narrow yeah. that I think that he
2: could get away with it.
1: Yeah. I think he can get away with it too. Oh. Like I said, if you want the drawer front to be Walnut, do the rip and flip per Philip Morley. I think that's what he calls the rip and flip and, you know, just build the, the, the veneer up on the front and put a backer on. I think it'll be fine.
2: Yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, it, that definitely is a pretty cool, cool look. Yeah. It's, you know, man, that, Yeah, maybe a little tough lining those up just right, but I agree. Just make it one long board, route that out, inlay the uh, maple, cut your drawer front. Dang, even then you got a curve you you don't worry about. Can you
1: include a picture of this in the show notes? Is there any way to do that?
2: I'll I'll ask him if he he wants, if he'll allow us to, because I don't want to just do it. Yeah. Yeah, People steal his designs. No, I like it. It's it's an
1: awesome design. I think if people listening to this... You know, they might want to see exactly what we're talking about because it's hard to, it's not what I envisioned. Well, let me, let me, let me
0: bring this up also. So his, the curly maple will be actually going in an alternating grain direction. Is that correct? No, I may have gotten that. I may have gotten that wrong now that I
2: looked at it again for the second picture. Mm-hmm. But no, yeah, the drawer, the, the apron is left to right. And then mm-hmm. he's in, so He's going to cut out a, a uh, I guess, a triangle shape in the apron. And he's going to inlay the maple the same direction. I got that. I got that backwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. it, it's it, it's confusing for me to say it, but imagine an apron, left to right grain, and he cuts mm-hmm. out a triangle that spans almost the entire length of the apron Yeah, and is going to inlay a piece of maple in there as yeah, well.
0: Yeah, it's a very cool accent. I, I like it. I think yeah. it look great. Um, yeah, but, I, you know, I, to be honest, I don't know if necessarily he's going to get that. I, I don't know if he's going to have an issue if he just laminates it. I really
1: don't think he's going to have much of an issue either. Yeah. No,
0: especially since it's five of an eight,
2: five eighths. I can't even talk tonight. Five eighths thick, an eighth inch. No, I think it will be fine. I mean, I'd, yeah. I'd try it. But again, you know, that's just me. Mm. I learned the
1: yeah. hard way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that helps, Tyler. Taylor. <laughs> I did that on purpose.
0: Yeah, we know. Uh. <laughs> I've got the last question. So let me go ahead and get it, get it queued up here. This question is from Dan, and he says, Hi guys, another question. I currently have a bandsaw, a Rikon Ten Three Twenty Six, set up for resaw with a half-inch wood slicer blade, and it's working great. But now I need to cut some curved work pieces. I only need to do a couple, and then I would want to go back to setting it up for resaw. I dread having to change the blade and set the guides for one cut, and then again for resaw, but I also don't want to distort or dull my resaw blade. Should I just use this blade for both jobs, or is there a blade or configuration that works for general purpose to minimize the changing blades and guide setup? Well, Dan, I am right there with you. If I don't have to change my blade, I don't do it. And much like you, I'm using a half-inch 3TPI band, so I'm assuming it's a 3TPI. Uh, bandsaw blade as a general purpose blade I believe the smallest radius that you can cut with a half inch blade according to my manufacturer's specifications is two and a half inches of radius wow, at least that's, that's tight that is pretty tight but that's what that's what my as to whether or not you can actually do that is another question that's what the, <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what my uh, bandsaw blade manufacturer says you can cut a two and a half inch radius with it uh, at least that's, uh, yeah, Dang. that's, yeah, that's, that's what my manufacturer. Just try We right? let us know. Yeah, man,
1: that can <laughs> happen, man. Not with a half inch blade, there's no way.
0: If I were you, I'd make plenty of relief cuts before making the curve cut. And if for some reason you can't make that curve cut with the relief cuts, um, maybe make the curve cut a little bit wider. And then as you need come back a second time with more relief cuts to make the tighter second pass. If that doesn't cut it, <laughs> uh, then, <laughs> ch- <laughs> then change out to a narrow blade and um and maybe use a disc sander stationary bell sander or a spindle sander to get to your line whatever you might have but no I, I mean I, I don't like changing out blades and I have a quarter inch blade and I've never used it <laughs> I've never put it in my machine Sean how about you 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 change out blades a lot for, would you, <laughs> what, like what what would you do in this case look I am,
2: I am lazy when it comes to changing saw blades. I'll, I'll curve cut the heck out of everything. I keep (laughs) one blade in the saw and I don't change it at all. I mean, if I'm doing some crazy stuff and a lot of it, yes. But if I need to, if I'm making a table and I have, you know, and I'm making aprons, that have a curve in it. And I know that I'm going to be using one as a template for the other ones. I'm just going to do the uh, relief cuts and then cut it out and get it close to what I want. And then um, slap a, uh, a CNC template on top of it and use a flush trim bit. But I- I'm doing relief cuts as, as much as I can now. But again, if you have a lot to batch out and you're using the bandsaw, it doesn't make sense to to uh, use relief cuts and, and be lazy just switch the blade out. It just depends on how often you need to do it. If you need something that's quick and dirty, relief cuts. Otherwise, if you have a lot of stuff to do, just change it out. Just suck it up and change it out.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with the change it out thing. I, I had a, a operation just this last weekend on Saturday where I had a a piece of maple burl that I scored from work as a cutoff from a slab. And I wanted to cut it in veneer. And I have a uh three 8 inch, three TPI or half inch uh three TPI uh blade on my bandsaw. It's a good blade, it's it's very sharp. And I wanted to go a little bit over a 16th of an inch, not quite 330 seconds, but not a 16th of an inch, somewhere in between there. And I cut the first piece, and I was very unhappy with the cut. So I said, you know what? I've got a brand new wood slicer over there, which I've used before in my old grizzly, but never on my power matic because I always had a, a carbide blade which has broke again, and I'm I'm not going to get it fixed. Anyways, so I set about pulling off the half-inch 3TPI blade and putting on the half-inch wood slicer. It took me, I want to say, maybe five minutes to do so. And, you know, you put the blade on, you tension it, you set the tracking, you set your, your roller for the the back of the blade, and then on the sides, and it, it's very easy. The Rikon's a good uh, good bandsaw, so I th- I would think that it's pretty easy to change those guides and get it set up. It didn't take much time, and the bottom line is I was very happy I did because that wood slicer for cutting veneer, it kicks butt. I was cutting through that, that burl. Getting sixteenth, a little bit better than sixteenth, of it cuts out of it very little. Uh, the kerf was really small, and it just beautiful, just beautiful. And I took it, I took it off because I don't want to leave it on there all the time. And it took me about five minutes, and I put the other blade back on. Putting a blade, taking a blade uh, off and on on a on a bandsaw is actually pretty easy if you know what you're doing. Yeah, well,
0: I still don't like doing it. Neither do I. All right. So let's talk about what we've got going on in the shop. And since, Guy, we started off with you with the questions, we'll start off with you for what you've got going on in the shop.
1: Well, this weekend I cut some veneer on my bandsaw, and I had to change the light. Oh, wait a second. What's talk <laughs> that's, that, that's that's a, That's a bad joke. I had a, a friend at work, one of the volunteers that, that works with us up there, wanted me to make a plaque for him this handwritten recipe his wife did for Mother's Day. And, and I, I put that onto a, a a piece of wood and engraved that for him on the CNC. And that was about it that I've got going on in the shop. We did at work, we got a brand new bandsaw that I'm pretty psyched about. Um, hopefully, saw that. hopefully we can get the elect- electricity hooked up soon because I've got this really kick-ass piece of equipment that I can't turn on. So that's pretty much it. What about you, Sean?
2: Well, last episode, I said that by this episode, I would be in the pre-finishing stages of this wall cabinet. And that's exactly where I'm at. So by the next episode, I will be done with that cabinet. And I apologize because it's been the nine month long cabinet. And that's all I've talked about here on the podcast. what are you doing? Well, nothing cabinet, nothing cabinet, nothing cabinet. You know, I, I just, uh, yeah, that's, that's a topic for another show, but by the next episode, it'll be done, and then um, I'm going to evaluate what's next for me in my shop. But As of right now, that would be nothing. I, I do have some uh, some shop upgrades planned uh, that I will talk about when the time comes, but other than that, yeah, I will have the cabinet done next time, and I'll stop talking about this freaking cabinet.
0: What about you, Vuik? <laughs> Man, not much. I just installed my mini split in the new shop, and I just... Can I tell you, having my old shop in the old house, I am just unmotivated to drive to my old shop and to do anything. It's just I, I realize now why people that have the opportunity to build or rent a shop somewhere else, why they still keep it in their house or close to their house, because it's it's just completely unmotivating to drive to my other shop to do anything.
1: It um, sounds like you're just lazy yeah i'm unmotivated to walk in the garage from the house
0: (laughs) (laughs) but uh but yeah i've got my mini split installed uh so man when are you gonna start
1: bringing the tools over i want the the mini splits in okay you got the electrical done
0: electrical's done insulation's done uh lighting's done okay start Uh, bringing stuff on blinds are blinds nice yeah well i've got big windows that Go out to the front of my house, and I don't want you know people just being able to see in. When oh,
1: when it looks ductwork. like a really bad neighborhood that you got to worry about <laughs> that stuff. <laughs> just bring the stuff over. Well, anyway, uh, I w- I want to
0: put in the duct work before I before I do that because having the tools in the way is just going to be a nightmare. Oh, it's just you got all that room. Of,
1: just stick all the, you know, you know, it sounds like you just got, it's an like excuse, uh, excuses after, excuse yeah. after excuse. I oh, knew you were going to say that. First. I gotta do
2: just, first. just, just do what I do. We, and just say, I don't want to, don't make excuses. I,
0: <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to. All right. Well, I think that wraps it up for this show. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community and please Please send in your questions. We are running low. We need them. Uh, we, we need them. We do this. We ask this about uh, once every quarter. So uh, please uh, send in your woodworking questions. We'd love to get them. Um, and if you do have those questions, please send them through the podcast contact page at woodchopplifepodcast.com or you can DM us through Instagram at Woodshoplife. We would also like to thank everyone who has left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. And you can reach me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are on my website. Where can you be found, Guy?
1: Uh, I'll go to Instagram, just at Guy's Woodshop. There you go. All right.
2: And Guy? He already answered. Yeah. I'm sorry. And (laughs) shocked. you leave that in too. Don't edit that out. Uh, you can and uh, You can find me at simplecove.com forward slash Sean if you want to see all of my projects. And you can find me on Instagram at Simple
0: Cove. And Guy? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Great. Thanks for listening. <laughs> we'll all see right. you guys in a couple of weeks. All right. See ya. See you.